From Moses, the Midwest Organic and Sustainable Education Service, this is the In Her Boots podcast, a show about women cultivating the sustainable and organic agriculture movement and how she does it. My name is Lisa Kiverest, and I founded and lead the award-winning Moses In Her Boots project, providing training, resources, and support for women farmers. I'm a farmer myself, running in serendipity with my family in Wisconsin, and am the author of Soil Sisters, a toolkit for women farmers. The In Her Boots podcast celebrates the collaborative spirit of us women farmers and all women working to transform our food system and steward our land, sharing ideas and inspiration with each other. Whether you're a woman with a dream of starting your own farm or already have your hands deep in the soil, there's something for you here. Be sure to subscribe so you won't miss anything. Today we sit down with Marie Raboyne of Brick Cider as she shares her journey of launching her orchard, hard cider company, and farm-to-table restaurant in Mount Horeb, Wisconsin. Want a dose of entrepreneurial inspiration? Hear how Marie learned to ask for help, embrace the unknown, and tap into her collaborative women farmer network. Marie Raboyne runs Brick Cider, a hard cider company, farm-to-table restaurant, and small orchard with her husband, Matt, as well as raising two young kids, Teddy and Vera. Marie has worked in conservation agriculture for over 15 years with the Natural Resources Conservation Service, Land Conservation, and UW Extension, as well as the Director of Agroecology at a local NGO in Malawi, Africa. With degrees in soil science and agroecology, Marie has focused her work on supporting farmers that practice conservation agriculture, specifically managed grazing and cover cropping systems. We are kicking off a new series of our In Her Boots podcast with Marie Raboyne of Bricks Cider Pub in lovely Mount Horeb outside of Madison on the west side. We are in the room literally, so you probably will hear people doing things to make your wonderful cider, award-winning cider. Congratulations. Award-winning, yeah. Thanks. And I am sure you have people walk into here now seeing literally the fruits of labor Granted, a tree that is still growing, right? But and and say this is the dream job, right? This is like the vision everybody wants to be doing their own thing and running their own business and the cider pub and bringing people together over some good brews, etc. However, <laughs> you know very well it's a long road. It was a long and a multi-year road, multi-year road yep. and vision and all of that. And kudos because this is amazing Thanks. and you're amazing and it just brings it all together. But what we love to do on this podcast is really see things from a female lens of your story and where things started because you, well, I don't know, started wherever you want to start it, but I mean, you didn't grow up with a very ag background, right? Or I mean, as far as no, a lot, a lot of these things came new as you evolved. Yeah. My, uh, where's your roots? Yeah. My, well, I was originally from Cable, Wisconsin, which is way up north, but really I grew up in. In Wauwatosa, which is just outside Milwaukee. And um, my grandfather was a sausage maker in Milwaukee. He owned a sausage That's company. That's Milwaukee grandfather. Yes. We're That's pretty classic, classic German. Yeah. I'm like 99.9% German. Um, and then my on my uh, my paternal side, we've got cheesemakers. So, so you come from a very food entrepreneur family. Yeah, cheese and sausage. I mean, pretty classic. But... Um, they, my grandpa sold the business and no one in the family was really able to transition it just as regulations changed. So it was kind of an interesting, but that's my roots. I'm from Milwaukee, 
my mom grew up delivering sausage and hot dogs all around town and all her brothers and sisters did the same. So, yes. And then, you know, I went to school at Stevens Point for soil science, which you kind real of... real strong conservation roots. Yes. And yeah. environmental science. Yep. I went to School of Natural Resources and um, did the soil science route, which took me into conservation. And I started a job with Natural Resource Conservation Service in... 2003, I believe. So I started right away with them um, and did that for a few years, went to graduate school, got bored. I'm, I'm a perpetual job changer and job quitter. I get bored really easy. So um, I spent That's a few years working. about yourself, though. Yes, I've got job ADD for sure. I, I like to change it up a little bit. So but you're, you're under the same umbrella. I mean, yes. different things. Yep. All with within for conservation, conservation, agriculture. Yes, definitely. And it just kind of jumping around from job to job, learning new things. Um, so I bounced around, got a graduate degree from Madison in agroecology, which actually was, was really good. It, it kind of pushed me more to the social end of conservation agriculture. I mean, I did a a traditional science researchy thesis, but I had to take a lot of classes in sociology and rural sociology. And you things like you that. do a lot of outreach and education. Yes. You enjoy yeah, that, right? and I mean, actually, you know, I kind of joked. I work as a conservation specialist or a soil conservationist, whatever you want to call us. Ninety percent of my job is social. I mean, even just this morning before I got here, I was sitting down at a guy's kitchen table figuring out where the cover crops are going this year. So it's a lot of sitting down at the table talking about what crops are looking like, what things, you know, but it's it's also just figuring out where people can fit conservation into their existing farm. So it's a lot of social work. So that head of yours with the conservation side has been more agency focused, right? Yep. I mean, like jobs with yep. agencies. Governments, NGOs. Yeah, yep. which is <laughs> balanced with this creative entrepreneurial side of yours. So, yeah. so when did the ideas for... The cider pub for Sparker. Your husband Matt is also I mean, similar background, right? As yeah, far as yeah, he's the growing side. Kind of, yeah. He has an art degree, but oh, oh. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't have guessed which that. Comes in. He has a oh, fine and, arts degree, which hence comes the beautiful in beautiful design of yeah, this pub. Yes, exactly. So he's got an eye for that. He can do all the label design. Oh wow! You know, the great. Adobe Acrobat things, which I I don't do. So he does all all the art behind everything. But yeah, so but he we met in graduate school in agroecology, so that's that's how that started. But I think, you know, he went the very traditional route. Oh, not tradi- I shouldn't say that it was not traditional. He did a lot of international research during graduate school, which took him to a job with USAID as an agriculture officer. Oh, so we got shipped overseas for a few years. We were living in sub-Saharan Africa, and I got really homesick and kind of decided that the vagabond life of international development just wasn't for us. We really like Wisconsin. We're both from here. We needed to come home, and so. We put in our years with um, with the Foreign Service, and and then Matt quit. So that was probably my influence on him. <laughs> you know, I'm, like I'm it always changed. I'm always telling people to quit their jobs and, and try something new. So we did that. We came back and and pretty much right away decided we wanted to live in the Driftless. I got a job in Dodgeville, and then apples just grow really well here. So it was kind of like. You know, we thought about a brewery because we really liked home brewing, but everyone and their mother is starting a brewery right now, and we just didn't want to jump on that bandwagon. So um, we had made a couple really good hard ciders and thought, well, it makes a lot of sense to use a resource that's 
already exist in, in existence in the Driftless region, which is apples. I mean, you can't drive down a valley in May and not see a gazillion apple trees in the Driftless region just blooming. You see these white trees blooming, and they're either plums or apples, and there's a lot of apples. So we went that direction. We bought a small piece of property and just started planting a zillion different varieties. We have a hundred, probably over 120 varieties of apples we're growing right now. And that's your home orchard. Yeah, and it's just an experimental station. You know, <laughs> I mean, we don't do a lot of anything. It is like the exact opposite way to run a commercial orchard because they all need different, you, all, you know, each variety requires a different type of maintenance. Mm-hmm. So we're, it's a total disaster orchard, but in some ways it's really cool because we've got all these varieties that no one has access to. And we've made some good friends in the apple world that has that have helped us get get those varieties. Oh, that's great! Yeah, and you went into the apples and the orchard knowing you wanted to do cider. Yep, hard yeah. cider. Yep, we always wanted to do. We did not want to do just wholesale or anything like that. We don't have a big enough place, and we like the idea of using people's seconds. So mm-hmm. all the apples we use right now are apples that would otherwise be discarded or lay on the ground or just never get picked so everything we use is is really we're kind of saving something from waste oh that's great yeah and the whole cider market's really growing too right it has been growing over the past probably 10 years we've seen a big increase and you know a majority of that increase in the cider market is going to be your big players cider boys of wisconsin angry orchard um, woodchuck things like that but they also propel I think I like to think that we can kind of ride their coattails sure. as smaller it's a, cideries. It's a point of entry. Yes, yeah. So they've and they can they can spend the bucks to educate the populace on the on the good of how ciders can be good. But then we can people can come in here and not feel like they're drinking a Jolly Rancher, which is more what uh, a lot of the commercial ciders taste. Because like. I mean, hard cider has been around for forever. I mean, right? It's forever. Not, it's, it's, it's I mean, a very it was the first alcohol beverage. in the U.S. for really? sure. Oh, wow. Even yeah, besides distil- Yeah, so what it was is a lot of homesteaders would plant small orchards to produce their own cider. And as people moved from the farm into the city, it made a lot more sense and it was a lot more efficient to actually bring the grain to the city on the trains and then brewer, you know, start brewing. So hard apple cider was the original drink of choice throughout the United States, especially the eastern United States. But then as, as we saw a population shift during the industrial age, we saw brewing kind of rise up. And, Interesting. Yeah. And today, if I'm understanding right, the growth of cider, too, is driven by folks gluten-free, right? Because we can't drink I, beer? Yeah, is that- I think so. And I think there's just, I think there's room for both. Like, I don't like to think that because you can't have gluten, then you have cider. Yeah. I think there's a lot of beer drinkers that also just want another, it's just another beverage. Yeah. Well, that would really. be me. I mean, I yeah. I just, it, just a personal thing, a little embarrassing being a good Wisconsin girl, but I just never was a beer drinker. Yeah. I never, the tastes didn't appeal, but right. ciders, I love. Your yeah. ciders, I love. Yeah. No, I think it's it's both. And it's funny because a lot of nights I finish up working here and to be honest, I grab a beer out of the cooler. <laughs> I mean, I really like beer. I really like our ciders, but I also really like beer. So I don't think it's it's one or the other. It's just kind of, you know, what you feel like having that day or try something new. And, and ours change. People laugh because they'll come in week to week and they can try a whole new flight. We'll have four ciders that are changed from two weeks ago. Because you make small batches. We make really unique. small batches. Yeah. Like, a little renegade. Yep. 
like 60, we've got eight 60 gallon different batches going right now. And then a few 250 gallons that kind of round out our distribution channels. Wow. So most of it's small scale. And really so small. when you started, so what, how long ago was that about when you started, when you bought your property and you started with the Apple? 2014. 2014. Okay. So still less than a. Yeah, I mean, five years. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. I figure we hit about five years this year. And when you started the trees, you had a vision of the cider pub. I mean, yep, yep. We were choosing cycle. varieties of apples that would be good for cider. And um, I mean, <laughs> there's a lot there between point A and B. But talk us through. I mean, so you 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 were looking. How did you decide on this place here? Well, sometimes you don't get to decide. <laughs> yep. Oftentimes you don't get to decide. Um, so we. Well, our farm's in Barneveld, which is Iowa County. Um, there are three stoplights in all of Iowa County. So to think that there's a community there that can really support, I mean, it's hard to, it's hard to put a business in a truly rural community and think that a town of 1,200 people can really support, you know, a brand new, innovative, high volume business. Because you're the first cider pub in Wisconsin. We are the first cider pub. And what that means is that um, we get equal sales from cider and food. So it's not that we're the first cidery. There were many, probably a dozen cideries before us. Okay. um, But we're the first one that has food as a large component. As a place to come. Yep. And as our, a a big part of the cash flow equation is our food. Okay. So, um, but and was that always part of your business plan? You always no, wanted to do that? No. No, and that's where this whole you don't always get to choose comes in. Like we we really just wanted to open a tap room with some light food options, cheese boards, things like that. Um, we had a lease signed for a space that was about half the size of what we're currently in. Um, but a lot of things didn't work and that's fine. I think sometimes things happen for a reason. And that project fell through and we were kind of homeless for six months or so and really stressing out because we had this business loan we took out that we were paying on and we're not using. And if anyone understands that, that's a really big deal. We probably lost, we lost a lot of money Mm. in that whole year where we were homeless because we were told we had somewhere to open up. We took out the business loan to do that. And then we sat on our business loan for almost a year, which is a really big deal. Um, and you weren't producing then no, either. Obviously, no, because we didn't have space. anywhere to do it. And so we were just paying, wow. making payments on a loan we weren't using. And the problem there is that when you do open, you need all that money that you just paid back to them. So like the fact that I was short however many tens of thousands of dollars meant that I didn't have that cash on hand to open when we finally did get get this yeah. place open what, what fascinates me though i mean with your story and your roots in conservation you didn't go to business school you don't have no. your mba i mean how did you learn all this uh we had help i mean yeah we, well you've always been good uh, talk, tell me more about that because you've always been good about tapping into resources yeah, and I, I think one of my strengths is i'm really good at networking i know a yeah. lot of people um and i yeah so we We started writing a business plan. We ended up applying, which I think is important for people to know about, um, the Law and Entrepreneurship Center at the university is a free free legal service for people who are startup businesses. You can't be like, oh, I'm dreaming of this, help me be. But if you're like already rolling on your business and you've got stuff moving, they will take you on as a client for a year. And so we started there. They, we, you have to make a presentation and apply to be a client. So we got ex- the first time we got rejected. The second time they did take us on as a client. Um, so persistence. <laughs> um, 
And the the main lawyer, oopsie, in that, the lawyer that oversees that is, his name is Jeff Glazer, and he also happens to be probably the foremost alcohol lawyer in the state. So he has a private practice that he does um, alcohol law, so he works with practically every brewery Which is around, its own beast. Which is its own, chapter 125 of it is its totally own <laughs> thing. So we started with Jeff. Jeff then... Um, kind of took us under his wing um he's still our lawyer of course and um he introduced us to tara johnson of the food and finance institute so we went and took one of her classes and she took us on as clients which was really nice this was when tara was still taking on private clients um which i'm not sure she does anymore so i feel really lucky that we got in with her um she's really helped a lot of different businesses around wisconsin and around the country really launch you know there's a there's a whole handful of people she's helped. So, but you identified experts and yeah. mentors. Yes, and Tara was a she's yeah helped us with you know helped us find the person to clean up our performa so we could take that to a bank. You know, the that is the wildest craziest spreadsheet you will ever see. I mean, to get a bank loan is no joke. We probably. I don't know how many different banks we ended up going to. We ended up, which is, I think, really ironic, having Paul Dittman be our lending officer. And Paul Dittman worked, um, at that point, it was maybe still Badgerland Financial. But Paul is really well known in the emerging markets world and works with a lot of small farmers. And And I had known Paul for years before he came our became our lender. And they were willing to take a chance on us and, and give us the loan we needed. So... It's, it's kind of a small world in the end. Yeah, yeah, but you really do have a knack for connecting those dots because you just don't know where it's going. Right. Or you never know who you meet who might be able to exactly. help you. Yeah, but you also have a real uh, ability to say you have things to learn. Do you know what I mean? It, it can... Yeah, and you need you got to kind of wear your vulnerability on your sleeve when you're starting totally. your business too, and you right? you need to just have people that you can ask questions and, and trust. Be like, and, and trust to give you the right answer. And, and it seems silly, but like having Jeff and Aaron as our lawyers, like they're a husband-wife team, um, that is... It saves us so much money because when you have a lawyer or an insurance agent or any of these professional, a banker that understands your business you are going to get charged less because if I email Jeff a question about some weird alcohol law, he knows the answer. He doesn't have to spend time, which I am being billed for. That's a really good point. Right? Yeah. And so finding a lawyer, just because your sister is a lawyer and thinks that she can help you out, I don't know that that's true. Uh-huh. I think um, I think getting a lawyer, getting an insurance agent, all these bankers that understand you are going to save money in the long run because they are so much more efficient and better well-equipped to serve your needs. Like, even if my sister was a lawyer, Jeff and Aaron would be my lawyer. It's <laughs> You great. know, and it's, and it's the same with kind of these other professional services. And too, I would think a lot of what you're doing doesn't fit a box. You're no, creating yeah. new things. And that... you need someone who understands the intricacies of the law's of which in you you have to work you know mm-hmm. we have to work within chapter 125 right now and it's a mess is... which is the alcohol laws oh in that's a whole other beast yeah, yeah. but you know it yeah it's it's confusing and i'd rather not memorize the law so i have jeff there you know but you have all these different hats literally in different worlds from the farming growing side to the brewing producing cider side to the hospitality food service side and then anything in between right but 
clearly you, you thrive in that too, where you like having those different things going on. Or, it's okay. Or the, <laughs> it I mean, has its I, moments. It has its moments. I get a little overwhelmed. I mean, the we've been wholesaling hard cider since 2017. So we've been doing that about two years before we opened up here. And that's where you started. And that's where we started. And so that side of it, which is funny, that has turned into the easy no-brainer side of it. We also have an amazing um, employee that has been with us that whole time. His name's Dan, and we would flounder without Dan. He doesn't need to be told what to do. He just does what needs to get done. And, like, he is my most valuable asset, I think, at this point. So he can really just run with it. He gets what needs to get done done in the cidery, and we can focus on the business end of it. Um, and then I think the biggest learning curve for us has been the restaurant. I mean, we are now running a full on restaurant, which was not the original plan in the small space tap room with a couple cheese boards. Sure. But when we were offered the space in Mount Horeb, we had to take it and it came with a full kitchen. Oh, okay. And That's so <laughs> there wasn't any, like, you don't use that space you know like we can the space is so huge we had to draw more people in just than a tap room was going to and so i think right now about 50 percent of our sales are cider and about 50 percent is the food okay so So it's working in a way you weren't planning yeah i mean we we make way more money on cider i wish the food thing didn't exist and that we could make it just for cider but i do what i really like about food is i get to buy food from my friends you I mean, do i see that menu of yours. i it buy food delish. from everybody i know i got so the eight, local you know. sourcing has always been yeah you're doing everything right here as far as your ingredients go. yeah that's always been both your values and your business yeah plan. and that's what i i mean in my professional world i tell people that the best way to make money is direct market well you need restaurants to support that or that whole direct marketing scheme doesn't work if restaurants don't participate if institutions don't participate in local food i don't see how farms can actually how small scale farms can make it without a direct market option and restaurants are not always super forthcoming about how they source things so we are and it's brutal i mean i i source from i don't know i've got probably 20 different people i'm sourcing from it's a lot of emails every week. Emails, checks, deliveries, yep. pickups. A lot. I spend a lot of time writing and signing checks. Um, yeah, trying to work out delivery. You know, at first I was running around like a crazy person, and now I decided if you can't deliver to me, I can't buy from you, you know? Sure. Like there's certain things that I can't do anymore, and I can't run around South Central Wisconsin and Southwest Wisconsin picking up 10 pounds of this and 4 pounds of that. So, um, you know, I'll make a few exceptions, but for the most part, yeah, it's... It's a lot of work sourcing a farm-to-table restaurant. And I think my advantage is that because I've worked in this area for so long, I know all the farms already. Sure. I get that. It's not easy. Like if, if I was someone coming in off the street with no entry into the farm community, I mean, just this morning I emailed someone. I said, hey, we want to try Lamberger on the menu. Can you deliver 15 pounds? Sure. Because, you know, I've got 10 people I could source lamb from. You know, I mean, I've got 15 beef people within 10 miles I could source. So it's really, my biggest problem is more people want to sell me food than I can get out the door, you know? I think that's, I always feel bad when I have to say to someone no. Yeah. Because I, I already have someone with pork or I already have my beef person, you know? Um, oh, but that's so. huge. And you're doing it right and um, it takes time. It takes time. But yeah. the networking bit is a really important 
point you're making that sometimes when people jump into businesses, I don't know, the pieces fit in different ways, but you had it going there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, it's it's really important. to And, and a lo- that is all my professional career has gotten me, those networking opportunities. And I just take advantage of them. Yep. So, Terrific. yeah. Well, cheers. It's lovely. All the best. Thanks. Good. Thanks for listening to our In Her Boots podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Kiverest, with the Moses In Her Boots project. This episode's audio engineer was Liam Kiverest of TechSocket.net. The podcast was brought to you by the Midwest Organic and Sustainable Education Service, Moses. The mission of Moses is to educate, inspire, and empower farmers to thrive in a sustainable organic system of agriculture. For more information on Moses, in her boots, and a bounty of organic resources, check out mosesorganic.org.